turn in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 19. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 928. Normally, when we think about Jesus, the word power is probably not the first word that comes to our mind. Probably if we were asked to describe Jesus, we would start with words like loving and kind and son of God. That's completely and totally appropriate and good. But I think sometimes we have an anemic view of Jesus. And an enlarged view of our own ability and power. In this morning's text, the power of Jesus is going to be on full display, even with him not even being there. And as we read God's word, as we look at this story, I want us to grow in our view of who Jesus is and have a more robust and a more mature view of who Jesus is and the power that he has. And at the same time, I'm going to help you see how a bunch of guys getting beat up is applicable to your life today. That's my little teaser. So as we look at this story, I want us to see this big idea. That the power of Jesus brings about repentance and transformed lives. So if you're following along in your outline provided in your bulletin, point number one there, the power of Jesus attracts imposters. So let's look at Acts 19, starting in verse 11. Follow along as I read. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So there's a mighty picture of power here, and if we don't look at the details, we're going to think that Paul was the powerful one. So look at the description that if a handkerchief or an apron touched Paul and you took those things to someone who was sick or under demon possession, they would be healed. That's pretty amazing. You know, if I, if I put my hand on this wonderful piece of fabric that's under these wonderful flowers, and then you took it to the hospital, 
and you just touched the people in the hospital and they all got up well, that'd be pretty amazing. And we'd be tempted to think that this is Paul's doing if we don't look at the details. Look how verse 11 begins. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. The person doing the miracles is not Paul. It is God using Paul. To use a simple analogy, Paul is merely the hose to the water. And unless you have a really sweet hose at your house, the hose is not the glamorous part of watering things. You don't go to someone's house and you're like, man, that is the awesomest hose I have ever seen in my life. I have hose envy. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. No judgments here. It's a safe place, guys. It's a safe place. We'll talk about it later. But again, this is important for our understanding of the miraculous. That even if God chooses to use you to do something miraculous, which he can and will do, you're not the point. But God is working through you. And if it's true of Paul, it's true of us. But in this display of power, imposters come out of the woodwork. And the juxtaposition of this display of power with, oh, these guys just happen to be trying to do the same thing, means it's showing us that they are there for the power. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists start trying to exorcise demons by saying, I adjure you or command you to come out by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, a couple things we need to notice here. Number one, when God displays power, it attracts false teachers and prophets. Because God is the all-powerful God of the universe and he acts in power, there will always be an attraction to those who desire power. So we need to be on guard against those who desire the power or the authority of God without belonging to him. We're going to see more of that in Acts chapter 20 in a few weeks. But God, in his sovereignty, has a really neat plan to show these imposters for who they are. So we look in verses 14 to 16, where these imposters are shown to be imposters. So seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. They were trying to claim the power of God by saying something along the lines of, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now it's okay to laugh at that because that is sort of funny. Okay? <laughs> Freedom to enjoy the humor. 
There's an extreme irony that a demon speaks truth to people here. <laughs> but it's showing God, God, God even uses the smart aleck comment of a demon to show the imposters for who they are because they are not his people. So Jesus I know, and Paul, yeah, I heard of him, but who are you guys? And then in verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The demon-possessed man beat the tar out of these guys. Showing they have no power at all. Showing them to be undeniably imposters seeking the power of God. Their defeat at the hands of one demon-possessed man shows they do not have the power of Jesus. But in a turn of events, the people around understood this to be a demonstration of God's power. That these imposters were ridiculed, were overpowered so easily, only pointed them back to God's power through Paul. And we're going to see in point number two there, that the power of Jesus brings repentance. So look at verse, starting in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So word got around that this little episode happened, that these imposters were shown to be imposters, and what it did was it elevated people's view of God that Paul was proclaiming. It elevated the power that God had. The power of Jesus that Paul was proclaiming. In the defeat of these seven sons of Sceva, Jesus was shown to be the true source of power. And it led them to fear and repentance and belief. Now in this context, this idea of fear, I think we need to connect it to a larger theme in your Bible, which is the, the, the phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's a common phrase. It shows up a lot, especially in the book of Proverbs. 
And I think that is the fear that fell upon people. Now, let me define quickly for you what I mean when I say the fear of the Lord. First of all, the fear of the Lord begins with this understanding. God is God, and I am not. That's the first step of the fear of the Lord, that you recognize you are not God and that there is a God of the universe who is all-powerful and all-knowing and governs all things by his sovereign will. One of the great pictures of this is in the first book, the first chapter of the book of Revelation. There's other places, but let me let me let me give you an example here. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. This is John, the writer speaking. When I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. There's a wonderful picture there of when John is in the presence of Jesus. He falls down as though dead. It's a wonderful picture of humility and submission to the Lord of the universe, of recognizing that he is the God who created everything, who holds the stars in his hands and has all glory and dominion and power. And John does exactly the right thing, and he falls flat on his face. That is a picture of the fear of the Lord. It is an honor and an awe before God as he really is. It is an attitude towards God that ignores flippancy. That rejects this idea of just sprinkling a little bit of Jesus into my life to make it taste better. But it is the God of the universe. And that is the fear of the Lord. But in one sense, this is the first step. This recognition of who God is is the first step of the journey of these people at Ephesus. Because what do we read? Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that because of this fear of the Lord and because of the preaching of about Jesus that the people who saw this happen, who heard about this happen, became believers. And a sign of their belief was repentance. Now, in the book of Acts especially, but also throughout the Bible, the idea of repentance and belief are always connected. You really can't do one without the other. Now, in this story, Luke is going to expand upon repentance. We're not going to separate them, but they are distinct. And and Luke is going to help us better understand what it means to repent. 
But I want you to see that the fear of the Lord leads to repentance, and repentance leads to belief. And that the power of Jesus brings people to repentance. Here, it was a physical demonstration of his power. But when someone is brought to repentance and faith in Christ, it is through the power of Jesus that that even happens. This is a visual depiction of what happens internally when someone believes in Christ. When we have the fear of the Lord, when we have a proper understanding of who God is, that will lead us to repentance and faith. And repentance leads to transformation. And so point number three in your outline there, the power of Jesus brings transformation. In Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, he talks about the seven A's of confession. Okay, it's pretty much a way to remember how to make a good apology, how to repent well, how to confess well. Let me read to you a couple of these. I'll, I'll read to you all seven of them. Number one, address everyone involved, all those whom you affected. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. Number three, admit specifically both attitudes and actions. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting someone. Number five, accept the consequences, such as making restitution. Number six, alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. If I punch you in the face, and I say, you know, I'm really sorry about that, and then I punch you in the face again, pretty quickly, you're going to start questioning my apology. Now, some of you, it might be fun to see just how many punches I can get in. But what I want us to understand is the connection between true repentance and life transformation. And here's the truth from God's word, that when you are truly repentant, you will change how you live. Now again, don't tune me out, because yeah, we all make mistakes again, we all make the same mistakes again. But the principle is the same. True repentance is marked by life transformation. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. So this display of the power of Jesus leads to repentance, and the repentance leads to life transformation. Look at verses 19 and 20. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's what we see from these people who, who saw this demonstration of God's power in Paul and not in the sons of Sceva that had led them to the fear of the Lord and repentance and faith in Christ, which led them to follow the life of Jesus and to leave their old life behind. In verse 19, it says, A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, we need to understand this in the light of the first century. Back then, when it's talking about magical arts, it's not talking about Magic the Gathering or those pulling a rabbit out of a hat or getting those trick... Uh, trick things where a flower pops out. We're not talking that. We're talking about a religion. We're talking about a worldview. When you see magic arts, don't think the magician who plays at a kid's birthday party. Think pagan religion. This is how they live their lives. You manipulate the gods by saying the right thing or doing the right thing, you have secret incantations that give you power over parts of the created world. It's their religion. It's their worldview. It's how they live their life. So they took the books that showed them how to live this magical life. These are their religious books. and they burn them. So it makes us ask the question, why? Why did they burn their books? And why did they do it in the sight of all, as verse 19 said? Why did they do it in public? This is a physical demonstration of these new believers leaving their old life behind and saying, I'm never going back. They can't go back because they burned their books. And when it says in verse 17, or sorry, verse 18, that they divulge their practices, well, when you study magic of the first century, the way that you had your power was you kept your secret words secret. Short explanation. But when you divulge your secret words, they lose their power. You can't get the secret words back because they're not secret anymore. This is a wonderful picture of dying to our former selves and living to new life in Christ. This is true repentance. You know, when we talk about repentance, we'll often talk about I'm walking in one way and I turn around. And it's more than just the turnaround, it's the beginning of walking in the new direction. This repentance is giving up on the old life and living a new life. 
Now, interestingly, Luke also adds in the detail of the cost of all these books. Look what it says, end of verse 19. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me help you understand how much money that is. In all likelihood, the pieces of silver there referred to as the coin, the denarius, which you've seen in other biblical passages before. And this coin, again, the one probably used here, was what you gave someone for a day's work. Okay, so a full day of work, if you're a day laborer, you would get one of these coins as your payment. Now multiply that times 50,000. In all likelihood, this amount of money is 50,000 days worth of working. Or, if you want it in years, I do a little math, not too much, but I do a little math. It's approximately 137 years worth of wages. And again, ask ourselves, why would Luke include that number? And why did someone go <laughs> through the mess of, of getting price tags on all these books? It demonstrates to us the cost of following Jesus. That living the new life, living the life that follows Jesus instead of following ourselves, is costly. Because change is costly. Because giving up on the old patterns and the old habits and the old way of life will cost us. Transformation is not easy. Living a new life that follows Jesus is not easy. And the question we come with ourselves is, are we willing to pay the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? people in Ephesus gave up what they knew about life. They gave up their worldview, their religion, everything they'd grown up being taught to follow Jesus. This is a picture of repentance. more than praying a prayer of decision. That's only the beginning. That's the beginning of it because when you decide, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, 
you are saying, I am willing to pay the cost to live and follow Jesus and to forsake all else, to give up on that old life. That is true repentance, and that's what this text is all about. It's about that initial repentance that those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ need to experience. And if that's you, you know, today is the day for you to repent of your sins, to understand the fear of the Lord, and to place your trust in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, it is also a daily repentance. It's not becoming callous to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. That when the Spirit convicts us, we repent. And through the power of that same Spirit, we live the new life that is transformed. Confess that anger. Confess that bitterness. Confess that idolatry in your life. Don't become callous to repentance. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me close with three points of application. Number one, beware of imposters who claim to be from Jesus and claim to have his power. The Bible tells us that there will always be false teachers and false prophets trying to infiltrate the church from the inside. And here's the question I always ask myself. Because there's a lot of people, especially for some reason, they always seem to find television shows for themselves. Do you ever wonder why those televangelists who claim to have the healing power never just walk into a hospital and heal everybody? But rather, you actually magically have to mail them a check before they'll do anything? I'm not saying, but I'm saying. Beware him. Posters. Test the spirits. Grow so that you can know the difference. Again, to borrow that, that question from the demon, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you? Secondly, and I can't say this enough, repent. In the book of 1 John, the big theme of the whole book is answering this question, how do I know I'm a believer in Jesus? 
And in the first chapter of the book of 1 John, it talks about confessing sin. Saying, if we don't... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will deliver, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? Familiar words to many of us. God's people are repenting people. Don't let your pride, don't let your bitterness, don't let anything get in the way of repenting your sin to Jesus. Don't ever harden that part of your heart. Be soft to the convicting work of the Spirit in your life. Number three, repentance leads to transformation. One sense we can think of it like this, that the second step of repentance is, is that commitment to changing how we live. Too often we get comfortable in how we are living. We just, don't want, we just don't want to change. But the picture here in Ephesus of the power of Jesus working in these young believers to transform their lives to be more like Jesus. Be committed to submitting to the transforming power of Jesus in your life. I have a friend that when he talks about encouraging people to help with children's ministry, he says this, he says, doing adult ministry is like trying to mold concrete. Some of the patterns we're engaged in are so built in, are so firm in our lives that it's like shaping concrete. Now the good news is that the Holy Spirit is excellent at breaking even concrete. (laughs) But it's a commitment on our part to be committed to becoming every day more and more like Jesus and giving up those old patterns giving up that sin that so easily entangles and living more and more like Jesus. And the good news is this is not just a pull your bootstraps, pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing, but that when a believer has the Spirit of God in them, He promises to be the one who transforms, to empower us to live that new life. The life that we've been called to. Let's pray. Father God, that we would never callous ourselves to your message of repentance. That we would be quick to repent and that we would call others to repent and believe in Jesus. And that by your spirit, you would transform us
to be conformed to the pattern and likeness of Jesus Christ. God, we pray for humble submission and obedience. And we pray for your spirit to empower us in life transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.